Do we love them? Do we love our enemies? This is one of the hardest teachings of our Lord in the entire book. Love your enemies. And it's hard, uh, not because the scriptures are difficult here, as you'll see. Right? The exposition of the text won't take that long. This passage is actually very simple. A child can understand it. This is a hard teaching because it is so incredibly hard to love your enemies. It is not natural to us as fallen sinners. So this is a simple but difficult teaching from our Lord. We learn it in a matter of minutes, but spend our whole lives trying to live it. Now, this is one of those texts that you could preach multiple times throughout the year, uh, and it will always have a great impact because there are always people who really need to hear that we are to love our enemies. Uh, but I'm just going to come clean. I decided to preach this one mainly for me. Right? This, this was for me, uh, and that might sound selfish. Um, maybe it is a little bit. Uh, forgive me. Uh, but I know that others need to hear this as well. And let me, let me explain what I mean. I found myself a couple of weeks ago sitting in my living room uh, and talking to my wife about the news uh, coupled with a book that I was reading on, on, on critical race theory and all this. And I looked at Autumn and I said, I know it's sinful, but I must confess that I often hate these people and sometimes I even wish that they would die. Some of you have heard me joke about communists in our country, and you've heard me say, we need another Red Scare. Right? We need to bring back McCarthyism. Some of you guys have heard me make that joke. Right? But these people that I said that I, I often hate them, and sometimes I even wish they would die, as, as most of you have guessed, I, I said this in reference to those on the political left in our country and throughout the world. Right? These would be those people who advocate for socialism, communism, critical race theory, atheism, transgenderism, homosexuality, the destruction of the nuclear family, abortion, you get the idea, the left. And I mean it whenever I say that it is sinful for me to hate them as people. But what I realized after I confessed that sin to my wife, what I realized is that I often hate my enemies. I realized that about myself, and, and, and I, I look... And I see that, that such people are opposed to Christ and his church. I see that they are opposed to all that God says is good and holy. And I see, if I'm going to keep it honest, probably more than either of those righteous indignation things. I see that they hate me. Right? And that they want to see me silenced, poor, and punished for what I believe. And I think I'm absolutely correct in saying that that is the end game desire of the left. They want to destroy the church. But that still doesn't mean that I'm allowed to hate them as people. Right? I can hate their ideology. I can hate what they do. But I cannot hate them on a personal level as my personal enemies. Jesus Christ absolutely forbids it. And I know for an absolute fact that I am not the only person in this church who has ever felt or even expressed such feelings of hatred. I know it for a fact because some of you have explicitly told me you feel this way sometimes. Others haven't said so explicitly, but I'm not stupid, and it's quite obvious based on the things you post on social media, uh, the content of most of your conversations and half of the jokes that you make, that this is at least a temptation for many of you here. And that means that, especially at this time in our culture with a cultural divide that is 100 miles wide between the church and the broader culture, we need to hear the words of our Lord Jesus about loving our enemies. We have to hear it. We have to hear it and heed it 
lest we become like the world and lose our witness to Christ and his majesty. Christ who loved his enemies. So with that said, though, I know some of you can already tell generally where I'm going to go with a lot of the points in my sermon because you've heard sermons on this text before. Don't tune out because you need to hear this. To paraphrase John Calvin, we don't come to the preaching of the word to hear something new. We come to the preaching of the word to hear what God has done and what our duties are towards him. Right? So with that said, please stand if you're able and you would. Stand with me for the reading of the inspired and errant and infallible word of God. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our perfect heavenly Father, be with us now, we pray. By your Spirit, open our hearts to receive your word. And teach us, God of love, teach us to love our enemies. Purify us by your word and spirit so we might more clearly reflect the Lord Jesus. Teach us and sanctify us, we pray. We ask for this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so uh, some context for this, right? Our passage is from the very famous Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Most of you knew that already. Um, And and, and the sermon actually begins in in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, right? And and we're going to look at that real quick because that's where we get our bearings uh, and and our setting for the whole passage. And it'll be important whenever we look at verse 45. Uh, But in the first two verses of Matthew 5, we read, Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, and then the sermon begins. All right, so crowds had gathered around Jesus, so he goes up on a mountain, or maybe more accurately, a high hill, and he sits down to teach. Um, and his disciples come to him to listen. Now, there were crowds there, for sure. Uh, the text says that. Uh, and they heard Jesus' teaching. But I think that the them in verse 2, to whom Jesus is said to be speaking, the them are his disciples, Again, no doubt the crowds heard him. We see that in chapter 7, verse 28. But Jesus' teaching was directed primarily to his disciples. That would be the 12 and others who had, at least for the time, professed to commit themselves to him and are currently following him. That will be important later, but just know that at the beginning. And throughout this discourse, Jesus is explaining to his disciples what life in the kingdom of God looks like. He's giving what we would call kingdom principles. He's telling them what kind of people make up the kingdom of God. And he's also telling them what it practically, morally, and ethically means to be a Christian. And our text this evening is part of a larger section of Jesus' sermon that goes from verses 17 to 48. Uh, And this section, rather in this section, Jesus is driving home the fact that the righteousness of his people must be more true, more biblical, more like God than the righteousness of the Jewish leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees. 
Right, that's, the, that's the big idea behind this passage, this portion of scripture we're in. And so in verses 21 through 48, Jesus gives uh, what, people, what, what commentators call six antitheses. And that's where he sets the true word of God, true doctrine, against the hypocritical teachings and perversions of the Jewish teachers. Right? And he does that by constantly using a refrain that you guys are familiar with. He says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Right? So these are antithetical statements. He said, you've heard this, but let me clear this up. I'm going to tell you something else. Right? So he's clearing up misconceptions and false teaching here. And so now we come to the last of the six antitheses in Jesus' sermon, and that's our text. And Jesus begins by saying, verse 43, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This was the conventional wisdom of the day. This was the, the, the normal teaching that you would hear. This is what the scribes and Pharisees taught. They took the biblical command and principle found in Leviticus 19.18, that you shall love your neighbor but then they distorted it by adding what they believed was the necessary other half. Well, if you're supposed to love your neighbor, then you shall also hate your enemy. right? And they added something to the word of God there. But that second half, you shall hate your enemy, is found nowhere in the Bible. It's not there. right? God never commands us to hate our enemies on a personal level. Now, a quick thing, maybe some of you are thinking, I've read the book of Psalms. I've seen these things called imprecations where King David prayed down God's wrath upon his enemies. That's another conversation for another time. If that one's bothering you, come see me after church. I don't have time to get into that now. But know this, David was not praying against them as his personal enemies. He was the king of Israel. To wage war or to harm David was an assault against the Lord because he was God's chosen king. Just know that real quick. Uh, so this, that doesn't contradict what I'm saying here. God never commands us to hate our enemies on a personal level. Never. On the contrary, the Old Testament instructs that we are to love even our enemies. Exodus chapter 23, verses 4 and 5. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. Your enemy. Bring his animals back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, that is, it's crushed, it's too heavy, and there's no one there to help it, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. All right, so you're to help even your enemy's animals and give them back to him. Proverbs 24, 17 and 18. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased and turn away his anger from him. You're not even supposed to rejoice when your enemy suffers. Proverbs 24, 29. Do not say, I will do to him as he has done to me. I will pay the man back for what he's done. That is, don't even desire revenge. Leave it to the Lord. Proverbs 25, 21. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. So even the Old Testament was clear that you are to love your enemies. You're to help the one who hates you. You're not to rejoice when your enemy suffers. You're not to seek revenge against an enemy. You're even to feed and give water to your enemy and even treat his animals well, even though he hates you. But that's not what the Pharisees taught. They taught that you only have to love your neighbor and you can hate your enemy. And, and listen, they defined neighbor so narrowly that it's basically love your friends. <laughs> love those who do good for you and hate everyone who does you wrong. They defined it so narrowly, contrary to what Jesus says in Luke 10, 
the parable of the Good Samaritan, your neighbor is whoever you come into contact with in your life. No, they defined it narrowly. And that's what, according to Jesus here, was the popular teaching of the day, right? Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. That's what they had heard was said. That is the Jewish oral tradition that was spoken. They had heard this. But this is the common wisdom of their day. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. And listen, we have the exact same thing. We have the exact same thing. We have received the same general wisdom from our culture. Um, loving your neighbor or your friend and hating your enemy is natural. Right? That doesn't mean that it's okay. <laughs> what I mean is that's what fallen, sinful human beings do by default. We love those who love us and we hate those who hate us. We seek revenge when we're wronged and generally we reciprocate kindness. Right, if someone's good to me, I'll be good back to them. But that's earthly wisdom. That's earthly wisdom. That's not God's wisdom. That's not Christian. That's fallen. But, but the wisdom that we've received from the culture is fundamentally the same. But it's baptized a little bit with Christianity. Right? I thought about this this past week. Because this love your neighbor and hate your enemy sounds maybe like, oh, that's harsh. We have the same thing. It's just got a, it's been baptized. Right? It's, it's got a little cross written on it. Right? Our general ethic in America is this. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, unless they mistreat you. Then it's do unto others as they have done unto you. Right? It's a, it's a, semi, it's a semi-Christian idea. Kind of. Right? It's, it's love your neighbor, yes, with a major caveat. The front half of it's Christian. Right? Probably because we have a Christian history and a bit of cultural memory of Christianity left in our country. But let me, let me maybe clarify this more. We say you should initially treat everyone as a neighbor. And you should initially try to love everybody. That should be your default. I'm going to love my neighbor and I'm going to assume everyone's my neighbor and I'm going to be kind to all. Unless, of course, they prove themselves to be my enemy, then it's okay for me to hate them. We are taught to start by assuming they're our neighbor and loving them, but then change to hatred if they show otherwise. And that's just a slightly modified version of what the scribes and Pharisees taught. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And just real quick, in case you think that you're maybe above this, here's how you know if you've fallen into the wisdom of the world in this. You say, either aloud, if you're really bold, or in your heart, right? maybe you're in the shower washing your hair, if you have it, uh, and, you're, and you're thinking to yourself, if they, whoever they is, if they do X, I'm going to do Y. And whatever Y, Y is revenge, or it's pettiness, or it's getting even, or it's saying something uh, evil to them, or it's doing the same thing back to them, or it's something other than love. If they do this, I'm going to do this. You know you've imbibed worldly wisdom when you are fundamentally saying, if you break it down, I'm going to hate my neighbor if they give me what I believe is just cause. Congratulations, you're thinking and behaving like a Pharisee and not a Christian. And so Jesus is now going to correct this perversion of biblical truth. Verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But I say, that's how he starts. Jesus says, I know what you've been taught, 
He says this to us today. I know what you've been taught. I know what comes naturally to you as sinners. But I say, as the Son of God, as the only lawgiver, as the King of God's kingdom, I say something else. Jesus is speaking with all authority here. I want you to see that. He's laying down the law for us. He's telling us to abandon and forsake whatever it is that we've been taught concerning how we treat our enemies. And we're to listen to him. And we're to do so because he, God in the flesh, the true king, says so. You have heard it say, you have heard it said, but I say. And he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You have to love the honesty of Jesus here. Right? He begins by affirming that we do indeed have enemies. I don't know maybe if you caught that or not. He affirms that you have enemies. Love your enemies presupposes that you have enemies. Right? Like real enemies. Or if you don't have them now, Jesus is assuming you're going to at some point in your life. He's keeping it real. Right? So just real quick, don't try to lie to yourself and act like everyone in the world likes you. That's dumb. Right? Especially if you're a Christian. Turn on the television for five minutes. Tell me if everyone loves you. Right? Especially if you're a Christian. Don't lie and say that everything is fine and dandy. You have, you have enemies. Jesus says you have enemies. But let's define enemy. What is an enemy? An enemy is anyone who is antagonistic towards you. Anyone who is antagonistic towards you at all. It's anyone who doesn't want you to do well. Anyone who would hurt you, whether it be physically, emotionally, or spiritually, or even financially, we could say as well. An enemy is anyone who desires your harm in any way. Maybe that's the best way to put it, broadly. An enemy is anyone who desires your harm in any way. You don't have to think very hard then to see you do have enemies. You probably have personal enemies. Right, People you, who you interact with, people who try to tear you down, uh, people who mock you, people who try to embarrass you, they try to hold you back from doing well, um, they, they try to intentionally hurt your feelings, they slander you, they hate you, they're always trying to hold you back. You have personal enemies, probably. Um, you have political, earthly enemies. I'm not saying you might, I'm telling you, you do have political enemies. There's an entire movement in the world and in our country that wants to see the church shut down and imprisoned and punished for declaring the lordship of Christ over all men and governments and groups. That's happening. You also have spiritual enemies. There are people in this world who want to see you abandon the faith and forsake Christ and true biblical religion. You have enemies. You have enemies. It's a fact. And they're everywhere. You probably come into contact with some each day. And some, whether individuals or larger scale groups, I would imagine have immediately come to your mind as I say these words about enemies. Whether it's a face or a general group. And Jesus says you are to love these people. You're to love them. You're to love those who do not love you. This is hard. Before I even get into what does he mean by love, just on its face, this is hard. You're to love those who don't love you. You're to love those who want to see you fail. You're to love those who want you to suffer. You're to love those who want to do you harm. You are to love your enemies. 
But what does he mean when he says love? What does our Lord mean? I don't believe, and we can argue about this if you want. I think you're wrong. But we can argue about this if you'd like. I don't believe that Jesus is telling us that we are to have some warm, burning affection of delight toward our enemies. I don't believe that. I don't believe that's what he's saying here. In fact, I would argue that to delight in your enemies would be to rejoice in their wickedness. You're going to delight in an evil person just as they are? No. That would be evil of you. We're not to, uh, I forget where it is in, in scripture. Someone can call it out if they want. Woe to you who call good evil and evil good. I believe it might have been Isaiah. We're not to delight in wickedness. No, Jesus is not telling you to have a brotherly, delighting, delighting affection for your enemies. They're your enemies, after all. They're your enemies. Rather, Jesus is telling us that we are to have goodwill toward our enemies and do good actions toward them. And I say that, not pulling that out of thin air, I say that because of the parallel passage to our text found in Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 29. And in that parallel, we read, our Lord saying, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Here Jesus, and in Luke 6, Jesus gives us examples of what the love he is speaking about looks like. First he says you are to do good to those who hate you. That is broad, and that's broad on purpose. You are to go out of your way to do good and kind things for those who would never in a million years do good things for you. You're to do good to those who hate you. You ever hated someone? <laughs> and That's coming at you. You do good to them. Second, you are to bless those who curse you. Now let's clarify something. You, this is not asking God to bless their endeavors. That would be sinful. Right? This is not also blessing we bless God. This is not praising your enemy for their wickedness. Instead, Jesus here, when he says bless those who curse you, Jesus is telling us to speak well of when we can. We're not supposed to lie. But speak well of and speak respectfully to those who speak horribly to us and horribly about us. To put it in more biblical language, we do not revile back when reviled. We do not talk to them or about them the way that they talk to or about us. Now, we tell the truth. We don't flatter, but we maintain godly speech toward those who curse us. Third, we see when someone strikes us, we offer the other cheek. When they take our cloak, we do not withhold our tunic. This means that we do not seek for revenge. Now, there's another discussion we can have about the civil magistrate and using legal courts. It's another talk for another time. But on a personal level, we do not seek for revenge. But we leave it all to God while we continue to show kindness. And what's amazing here is whenever Jesus says, turn the other cheek, if they strike you on your right cheek, you offer up your left one also. He's saying you make yourself vulnerable again to their disrespect. If you strike someone on the cheek, this is a backhanded sign of disrespect for their culture. 
He says, when they do that, you offer them the other one. You make yourself vulnerable to their hostility again because you refuse to personally retaliate against them and you continue to show them kindness. This is not American, by the way. This transcends culture. This, no one in our modern day is saying this. This is, this is God. But to love your enemies then is to take action. It's not primarily about warm, fuzzy affection towards them. They are your enemies, objectively. They're your enemies. Those kinds of affections don't really exist in the moment when you're being abused by your enemies. This isn't about warm fuzzies, right? Rather, you are to be godly toward them and show kindness toward those who hurt you and hate you. And Jesus says to pray for them, to pray for those who persecute you. This is goodwill. This is, this is the heart disposition that you're to have toward them. You are to mourn their sinful state. You're to be sad that they don't know God. And so you're to go to God on their behalf. You pray for them. You go to God and you earnestly desire what is best for them. So you pray for them. And what does this prayer consist of? Well, there's a lot that we could say here, but, but to, to summarize it, it's not asking God to bless their wicked endeavors. It's not asking God to smile upon them in their wickedness and assist them in it. Instead, this prayer for your enemies primarily consists of asking God to save them. Asking God to grant them repentance. Asking God to care for them. And allow them to live so that they might hear the gospel and be saved. This is goodwill. This is a benevolent attitude. This is love toward them. It's not delight in them, but it is desiring their ultimate good. It's, it's desiring them to receive Christ and mercy from God through Him. And listen, it takes legitimate love and goodwill to pray for someone. It really does. And I mean to really pray for them. I don't mean just offer up some cold words as lips. Well, Jesus says, i got to pray for him. So there you go, Biden. Right? And you just like chalk one up. Like you don't really mean it. I mean to actually pray for them. To get on your knees before the throne of God and take your enemy before him, asking God to open his eyes and have mercy. Knowing that they cannot approach God's throne, you approach God's throne on their behalf. That's love. That's what it looks like to love your enemies. That is the greatest kindness that you can show somebody. To cry out to God on behalf of someone who hates your guts and wants to hurt you. Or maybe has hurt you. To cry out to God on their behalf is to love them. And so Jesus says that we are to do good to them. And we are to pray for them. You want a little easy line to remember from this sermon? Here it is. Good acts and goodwill. That's what it means to love your enemy. That's what it means to love. Good acts and goodwill. That's the love that Jesus says we're to have towards those who hate us. But then Jesus goes on to tell us why we should love our enemies. Verses 44 and 45. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now I want to be clear about this. 
Jesus is not telling us that loving your enemies causes the new birth. He's not saying that this will make you into a son of God, as in regenerate your heart and, and, and grant you eternal life. No, that would be justification and regeneration by works instead of by grace alone. And that would contradict the words of Christ elsewhere in addition to the whole rest of Scripture. Instead, look at the word wording closely. Jesus says, verse 45, So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Your Father. Jesus says that God the Father is already the Father of those whom he is addressing. That is, at least, Jesus assumes that those to whom he is speaking already belong to God. After all, who's he talking to? Verses 1 and 2. He's primarily speaking to his disciples, those who claim to believe in him, those who claim to follow him. The disciple, the believer, already has God as his father. Our status as children of God is already implied in the phrase, your father in heaven. So what Jesus is saying here then is that, is that loving our enemies is the proper outworking of our relationship to God. Loving our enemies will make it known that we are sons of God. Or it will prove that God is our Father. Just like in the Beatitudes, chapter 5, verse 9, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. But being a peacemaker doesn't make someone God's child, but it manifests that they are God's child. The same idea is present here in verse 45. When we imitate the love of God, in a sense, you can say we become his sons. That is, we become recognizable as his sons. It becomes apparent to all that we are his children. Why? Because we look like him. Because we look like him when we love our enemies. We bear the family resemblance to our father when we love our enemies. And that leads us into the second half of this verse where Jesus explains this. Verse 45, for he, God, makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sins reign on the just and on the unjust. The sun and rain come upon both the righteous and the wicked, the children of God and the children of Satan. And Jesus reminds us that the, the sun and rain both belong to God. He says it is his son, and he makes it rise. It's his rain, and he sends the rain. Why, why is that important for us? Well, think with me here. Uh, God, in his almighty power and sovereignty, could suspend the natural order of things if he so chose and make it to where the sun and rain only come upon his people. If he wanted to, he could make it to where it, or the sun only shines upon Christians and where the rain only falls upon the crops of Christians. He could. After all, he did something quite similar in Exodus. The Jews didn't suffer the plagues, did they? Even though they lived in the same region as the Egyptians, the Jews didn't suffer the plagues. But the blessings of rain and sun don't just come upon his people. God grants sun and rain, that is, things needed for human existence. He sends both, even upon the ungodly. Jesus is telling us that our Father in heaven, God, does good and shows kindness even to those who hate him. He's calling us to imitate God. Remember, the Bible tells us that nobody's neutral, right? You either love God or you are at enmity with him. You are either a child of God or an enemy of God. There is no middle ground. But God causes good things to happen even to those who don't belong to him. 
even toward those who hate him and live in daily rebellion against him. In theology, we call this common grace. Right? God allows even his enemies to experience many blessings on earth. Right? There are blessings that are common to both believers and unbelievers. We share them. And they all come from the grace of God because neither group deserves any blessings from God. But let's think about it. Unbelievers can get married, right? Unbelievers can get married. They can know the joy of having children. They can know physical pleasures of life on earth. They can eat good food. They can laugh. They can have friends. Some of them are rich, right? They can partake of, of many, many of God's earthly, temporal blessings. And they hate God. Romans 8, for the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. The unbeliever hates God, and God gives all of these blessings to even the unbeliever. That's astounding. God shows a measure of love even to his enemies. Now I want to be clear. God does not show electing love and saving love to all men. He doesn't. He absolutely does not. That kind of love is reserved only for those whom God has chosen before the world began. God does not delight in the wicked like he delights in his people. He doesn't. Far from it. The Bible is replete with examples where God says he is angry with the wicked. He's angry with them. But God still shows a measure of love even to the unbeliever. Even towards his enemies. What does that mean then? God has goodwill toward them. Goodwill that is displayed in his common grace given to even the wicked. Or another example, and I'm walking away from my notes here real quick, the free offer of the gospel that we give. We preach the gospel indiscriminately to all men, do we not? Why? Because God tells us to. Both the elect and the non-elect hear the word of God preached and hear the call from God externally to come and repent. The offer of Christ is made to everyone. Why? As an expression of God's goodwill toward his creation. Now again, it's a great mystery, God's sovereignty over salvation and his proclamation that we give a free offer to all men. Whoever will come may come. But at the minimum, we see in the free offer of the gospel, we see God's goodwill towards all men just like we see it in his common grace. But bottom line, Jesus' point here is that God himself has goodwill toward and does kind, merciful, gracious things toward even his enemies. And Jesus is calling us to imitate our Father and that we would have goodwill and do good things toward our enemies too. And in doing so, we will show that we are his sons because we'll look like him. Brothers and sisters, if the holy God who is personally offended in a way that we will never fully comprehend because we are not holy like him. But if the God who is personally offended at every single sin, who has billions of enemies at this point in time in the world, if he can love his enemies by showing common grace and goodwill, surely we can. If God is not too high to show kindness to his enemies, we must do the same. We must be like our Father. But Jesus then goes on to remind us that we must be different from the world. Verses 46 and 47. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? 
Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Now, tax collectors and Gentiles, most of you know, those would be considered the lowest of the low. Those people were certainly not children of God. Those would be the most wicked people that you could think of. Right? The left, for us in our day. Right? As conservative Christians, who is a tax collector and Gentile for us in America? People on the left, leftists. Right? The commies. Right? That's, that's our tax collectors and Gentiles. The worst of the worst in our minds. But Jesus reminds us that even the most wicked sinners that we can think of love those who love them, don't they? So what reward do we have? How are we any different from them? How are we showing that we are any different when we abide by the same standards that they do? When we love those who love us and hate those who hate us. When we love our neighbor and hate our enemy, how does that challenge the world? How does that begin to show that we belong to God? It doesn't. It, it just flat doesn't. In fact, it makes us look like we're one of them. When we love like them. When we hate like them. It makes us look like we're worldlings. And it throws reproach upon the name and character of our God who loves all men with common grace and calls us to do the same. But this is always really a good question for us to think on. What am I doing that's any different from the world? Not just theology, not just doctrine, as important and foundational as those things are, but in practice, practically, what is different about my life compared to the unbeliever? How are my actions toward those who hurt me any different from how they treat those who hurt them? How is my attitude toward those who hate me any different from the world? How is my love any different from their love? What more am I doing than others? Or do I look the exact same? Except I say biblical doctrine and I go to church on Sunday. I'm preaching to myself too. May God help us to be different. What are you doing that's any different from them? But our love must be different. From natural man. It must be supernatural. And that leads us to the final point in this passage. Verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the goal. We are to strive to be like God, not men. I think that's Jesus' main point here. We're to strive to be like God, not men. We are, we are to strive to be perfect like God is perfect and to love like He loves. This reminds us of what God told the Israelites in Leviticus 19:2. You shall be holy. For I, the Lord your God, am holy. We are not to be like the world, hating our enemies and loving those who love us. We're rather, as Paul says in Ephesians 5.1, we are to be imitators of God. Imitators of God. We are to mimic God. We don't compare ourselves to the world and settle and be content in loving like Gentiles and tax collectors. You don't settle for that. We do not content ourselves with loving like Americans. Let me say that again for those of us who especially consider ourselves uh, uh, patriotic. We do not content ourselves with loving like Americans. We do not content ourselves with loving like the people in our church love, as if that were the standard. We strive to be like God. This is not something that natural men can do. This is something that only those who have been made new in Christ can do. 
It's only by the, the mighty working of the Spirit of God in our hearts that this becomes possible for us. But Jesus' point is, is that we love like God and not the world. God, His perfection, is the standard. And this always makes us to push to love more because we want to be like God. But at the same time, this pushes us towards Christ. Because we see in this verse that we can never attain this perfect standard. Be perfect like God is perfect? Are you kidding me? I can't do that. So this drives us to Jesus, who is our righteousness, who is love incarnate, who saves us. And so ironically, even as we strive to love like God loves, we must rely upon the love of God shown to us in Christ Jesus, given to save us from our sins. As we strive to love, we must rely upon God's love. And as we think on the fact that Christ was given for us as a sacrifice for sin, and that his righteousness is imputed to us as a gift from God, that he was sent because of God's love for us, as we think about that, we're reminded of something. And I'm going to try to tie some, some, some things together here. Brothers and sisters, above all else, we as Christians have the highest motivation to love our enemies, do we not? We have the highest motivation. Jesus Christ died for us while we were still his enemies. God loved us, his enemies, and by his love made us into his friends. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. This is one of my most favorite passages in all of Scripture. The Apostle Paul says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us while we were enemies of God. God loved us when we were his enemies. And he loved us not just with common grace, but with love upon love, grace upon grace, love that we cannot measure or fathom while we were still sinners. That is, while we were still enemies of God. Christ died for us while we were living our lives in rebellion. While every breath was a blasphemy, every word was an insult, every thought of our hearts were only evil continually, while every act was an act of rebellion, God loved us. And what's interesting here in Romans 5 is that Paul says, you might, maybe, consider dying for a good person. I always think of my mom. I, I might die for my mom. That's what Paul says. I might. You might die for a really good person, but you will not die for a wicked person. You will not die for your enemy. You won't. Not naturally, anyway. But God showed his love for us in sending Christ to die for his enemies in order to make us his children. And to push it further, while we were still dead in our sins and trespasses, God sent his Holy Spirit upon us to make us alive in Christ Jesus and unite us to him by faith. God loved us, his enemies. So how then do we receive that level of enemy love from our God and Father and then refuse to show any love toward our enemies? How? doesn't work. 
Perish the thought that we could ever say, I just can't love my enemy. Because we were enemies of God. And God loved us. You know, Pastor Derek Thomas pointed this out. God did not wait for you to love him first either, did he? He loved you while you were his enemy. If God would have waited for you to love him first, you would be going to hell right now. Because you were never going to love him first. But he loved you while you were his enemy. Surely then you can love another sinner. Brothers and sisters, if God has loved us so, we must love our enemies with good acts and good will. We can do this only with the power that comes from God working in our hearts as we reflect upon the love of God shown to us in Christ. So then, as I'm, I'm, as I'm coming to some conclusions here, the attitude of the Christian towards his enemy is this. I refuse to hate you. It's an act of the will here. I will not hate you. You cannot make me hate you. You curse me, I will not curse you back. You mock me, I will not mock you in return. You slander me, I will not tell lies about you. You embarrass me, I will continue to show you respect. You spit on me, I will wash your feet if you allow me to. You persecute me, I will pray for you. You hate me, I will have goodwill towards you. That's a Christian. A great example of this is from Richard Wormbrand, author of Tortured for Christ. Maybe some of you have heard of him. He was a Lutheran minister in communist Romania in the 1930s through the 50s. And he was imprisoned by the state for starting an underground church and speaking against communism. Uh, he was very vocal about communism being incompatible with Christianity, and the communists did not like that. And so he was imprisoned. For a total of 14 years, he was imprisoned. He was imprisoned twice. And when he was in, in prison, he was beaten horribly. Almost daily, this man was tortured. He had the soles of his feet broken open and beaten down to the bone with steel rods. His feet were ruined for the rest of his life. He walked crippled forever. While he was in prison, he was starved. He was regularly told, and it was a lie, but he was told his wife and children were dead. He was mutilated and burned in places on his body. He was tortured for 14 years for Christ's sake. And he records in his biography, autobiography, that one day his torturer asked him, what do you do all day in your cell? He said, I pray. He said, what do you pray about? Pastor Wormbrand said, I pray for you. To the man who beat him daily, I pray for you. That is Christianity. That's what it looks like to love your enemies. He, from his heart, prayed for his torturer for 14 years. He loved his enemies. That's what it looks like to live out this passage. That's what it looks like to imitate God in Christ. So in conclusion, brothers and sisters, we should be the most confusing people in the world. We won't back down. 
We stand for biblically defined justice. We call wicked men wicked. We hate evil. We actively work and fight to stop morality. We refuse to compromise on even a single article of our most holy faith. And we love our enemies. We love the evil person. We love the wicked man. We love the unbeliever. And we want what's best for them. According to God's word, we want what's best for them. The world does not do that. The world cannot do that. And that, brothers and sisters, will be the very point at which we will stand out and be separate from the world. That is the very point at which we will be known as the church of Jesus Christ. That is the point at which we will be known and marked out as the sons of God. Be confusing to the world, Christian. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, Lord, help us to love those who hate us. This is not natural for us. But Lord, by your grace, through the power of your Holy Spirit, as we meditate upon the truth of your word, this is possible for us to do. Not perfectly. We will never be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect, Lord. But by your grace, we can grow to love more and more each day the way you love. Help us to be like Christ who even on this cross prayed for his enemies. Help us, God, to not imbibe American conservatism to the point where we become like these soulless, heartless people who care nothing for their political enemies. Help us to not be taken in by that worldly philosophy and worldly understanding of things, but help us to be different. Help us to be a people who are politically and philosophically homeless in America because we fit in with nobody except the church because our only desire is to be like you. Help us, God, to love our enemies. Help us to honor you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.